between the time of the announcements and the time that I'm standing here, I received seven lozenges. <laughs> I, uh, I consider that an investment in a long sermon. <laughs> I will spare you that. My thoughts will be brief this morning as I share with you what is on our, our agenda, and that is to consider a passage of Scripture that has great power and weight if we consider it fully. <clears throat> when a baby arrives, we look for family resemblance. I know this is the case because I do it myself. Uh, it was just yesterday that I looked into the eyes of our granddaughter, Willa May, and as I was looking there, Sue was looking too, and I said what was on my mind, Sue said what was on her mind. She said, she said, isn't she beautiful? And without thinking, I said, she looks like me. And I, <laughs> those two things did not mix. Sue, Sue looked at me at that point and was trying to figure that one out. But I, I, I do say that I look, I look for the resemblance of myself. Now, it may have been just her bald head that was so drawing me in, but isn't that what you do too when you see a family member, you know, especially when you're peering through the nursery window in the hospital or you have a child in your arms and you're looking there and you are fixating upon not simply the look of that new child, but what is the connection point? Even if you're not a relative of the child, don't you find yourself saying, oh, he looks like or she looks like so-and-so. And the parents are so eager to agree with you that there are resemblances in the family. She looks just like your mama or your daddy or your sister. There's a Christmas song that we use very seldom. James Taylor put it on an album his Christmas album just uh, a couple of years back, and so you may know it that way. Uh, it was actually written by a fellow named Alfred Burt back in 1951, and these are the words that introduce it. Some children see him lily white, the baby Jesus born this night. Some children see him lily white with tresses soft and fair. Some children see him bronzed and brown. The Lord of heaven to earth come down. Some children see him bronzed and brown with dark and heavy hair. Some children see him almond-eyed. This Savior whom we kneel beside. Some children see him almond-eyed with skin of yellow hue. Now, I won't go through the entirety of the song, but you get the gist of what Alfred is getting at with his words for those lyrics. It's unavoidable, I think, that we want to recognize Jesus, but we also want to see him and see the DNA that is a part of us in him. And so uh, this explains why the portraits that we have in our homes and that we surround ourselves with are portraits of Jesus that look so much like us rather than not like us. Jesus seeks to make himself known. 
but in very mysterious ways. <clears throat> we are just about to begin that 40-day trek toward Easter celebration. And what a celebration that is. But you know as well as I that the mystery of the resurrection is something that can never, can never be understood in full. Why is it that those that saw him first did not recognize who he was? That's a mystery that the scripture does not explain. I've heard people try to explain it. People have said, well, he was in this form of a resurrected body that was so full and alive and vibrant that even his closest disciples didn't recognize that it was him. I can't bring myself to think that that's exactly what was going on. I think it was much more mysterious than that, and that there was something that was very spiritual and otherworldly about his nature. Do you remember even Mary there beside the tomb when she was weeping, was approached by whom she thought was the gardener? And until he spoke her name, she did not realize who it was. And he gave instructions, don't touch me for I've not yet ascended to my father. What was it about his nature at that point that was so different? The story of those two that were recounting on their walk to Emmaus as they tread this path, their heads downcast, as they contemplated the nature of Jesus' death at Golgotha that obviously they had witnessed and of which the word spread throughout that area and especially among those who were followers of Jesus. The stranger that came next to them as they walked, whom they did not recognize and who listened in on their conversation and acted as if he had no idea that of which they spoke. And there, before him, they began to pour out the events of the last few days. And then, in the midst of a breath, he begins to share with them as he unfolds Scripture in ways that they had never imagined before. They were so curious, still not knowing who it was, won't you come and have supper tonight? Must you move on down the road? Come have supper at our house. And when Jesus sits down at table with them, they still did not know who it was until he took bread and broke it. And then it came to them that this was the Lord. The mystery. God in disguise is somewhat unsettling. Matthew's gospel, as he sets it to be, has Jesus speaking this story as the very last thing that he spoke before he entered what we call the passion narrative of his life. That is, his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. We will not be speaking of those matters throughout Lent. 
in order that during the last days we might be fully prepared for talking about it and receiving it in full at Easter. But this story takes on a greater magnitude of importance when we think as Matthew has put it before us that these were Jesus's last story words to his disciples and to others who were within hearing these were his thoughts before entering into that passion narrative it is unsettling to think about this story the idea of the son of man coming in his glory and all of the angels and he will sit on his throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates his sheep and there will be on his right hand the sheep and on his left hand the goats now in my mind I think to myself, well, you go search the hills of Israel and you find a shepherd, he would only have sheep. <clears throat> I mean, in fact, that is the nature of the way in which the terminology uh, gives that prescribed name. But it was very common that they would have sheep and goats in a herd the goats particularly because they were not so blessed with that extra wool needed to be in a place of protection at night and so the shepherds had to figure that out and separate the goats and the sheep the goats who needed the protection even more so it seemed of the shepherd it's unsettling this story because the Son of Man does not seem to be recognized by either the sheep or the goats. You heard the story as it was read. Those who saw the ones that were in need and assisted, when they were asked the question by the Son of Man or the King or the Shepherd, how it was that they had helped him the king answers truly i tell you just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family you did it to me and what was it that they were doing they were feeding the hungry and they were taking care of the thirsty they were welcoming strangers they were clothing the naked and visiting the sick and those that were in prison they also we're communicating with them, not leaving them to themselves. And those that were the ones that were inattentive to these tasks, it's interesting that they too did not know that they were being inattentive. It says here that they would answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick 
or in prison? And he answered them, Truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. I was at the fear booth. I was saying in my own mind that I was assisting with cooking chicken fingers and french fries and those things that were necessary to sell at the front window. But truth be known, I was just visiting with folk most of all. And while I was standing there, I did what I have done for the last several years, and that was observe that just behind our food booth is that place where, um, I guess it's the FFA, um, and the students that have livestock will bring them to show their animals, and they are graded on that. Uh, I guess the animals are graded, and also the students are graded. But it's a fascinating thing to watch. And while I was watching, the goats came out. And I was just in love with the goats. I guess I've always been in love with goats. I don't know why. Um, I can remember when our family, when I was in the fifth grade, we were living in Metter, and I had a friend who lived in Pulaski. And he invited me to come out to his house one Sunday afternoon, and I went out there, and he said, let's chase goats. And I thought, yeah, let's chase goats. That's something I've never done before. And so he said, right across the, the, right across the street, we can, we can get out into that field. And I said, how do you do this? He said, well, you just got to lay low first and let them get a little bit closer. And so we allowed for those goats, one little one that happened over close to where we were, I'm sure wondering what in the world we were up to, was getting close enough for my friend to say, okay, let's go. And we began running after this little goat in hopes of tackling it. There was no way we were going to catch that animal. He was faster than lightning. And we chased and chased and had a great time. But there's something that is special about a goat. You just look at it. Just look at it. Now, some people will say, look kind of evil to me. But just look at it. How can you not love something like that? And yet, they're in a precarious situation here. This matter of goats and sheep, it's a little troublesome. And in fact, it is really important, it seems to me, that the goats figure this out most of all because their predicament is far worse than the sheep. In fact, we ought to all figure this out. Whether you put yourself on the goat side or whether you put yourself on the sheep side, all of this is about who you and I are and what we give ourselves to be. Some of you will remember the story that I have used before about a teacher of mine in school. He was a professor of preaching, Fred Craddock. He, Fred, would receive invitations to come and preach. He was such an outstanding preacher. And he received, I'm sure, more invitations than he could oblige. But he did accept an invitation to preach a set of revival services at a particular church. And he said 
to us. He, he said, and Nettie went with me, as she often does. Nettie was his wife. And so they were there Sunday evening through Wednesday evening at this church. And on Wednesday night, the pastor had said, I want you to, to come over to my house. You and Nettie come, and we'll have supper together. And in that meal around the table, it was a bounteous feast, and they were having good conversation. And in that meal, the pastor of the church said, isn't this the most loving church you've ever seen? So friendly, just absolutely so friendly. And Fred, of course, not wanting to be disagreeable, shook his head. But across the table from that pastor, Nettie ventured out to say, I wouldn't put it that way at all. And the pastor said, well, what do you mean? And Nettie said, well, frankly, he said, he said, you know, she said, I've been here every night of the revival and not a soul has greeted me. Hmm. And his response to her was, well, if they had known who you were. Boy, that makes everything right, doesn't it? <laughs> you get the point. We truly may not be aware, and it affects what we do and who we are. Now, truth be told, I'm not worried about sheep. It obviously is a part of their very nature. They don't even know that they're doing the right things. They have so absorbed what the Son of Man is about, what Jesus is about, that it is a part of their lives. It permeates their very being. And so it is not something that they have to think about, this feeding the hungry or welcoming the stranger or clothing those who are naked or taking care of the sick or visiting those that are in prison because it's just who they are. It's just a part of what they see life to be. I am very, however, worried for the goats because I fear that in their minds, at the point at which they might encounter a question about the situation, they will be thinking, if we had only known, if we had only known. And yet, no longer will there be time to set things in right place. You know John Wesley was going to preach on this subject, don't you? In fact, he entitled his sermon on this passage of Scripture on visiting the sick. One of the quotes that I find interesting that is directly from John Wesley's sermon is this. One great reason why the rich in general have so little sympathy for the poor is because they so seldom visit them. Hence, it is that according to the common observation, one part of the world does not know what the other suffers. And I lay this out for all of us to hear. For we as a nation are fabulously 
wealthy in comparison, especially to other nations on this planet. It's a fascinating sermon that John Wesley preaches. It's interesting that he spends a paragraph giving accolades to France. I thought, am I reading this right? John Wesley giving accolades to France. In this telling, he says that even those among the upper crust in France, he said, I have observed, even those are of the right bloodline, even those that are of the royal family, they go and visit the sick. And of course, what he's saying is, that's not happening here in England. He doesn't explain why it might have been happening in France at that time. But it is a call, his sermon is, for everyone to be busy with the work of caring for others. He, in fact, leaves no one out. He makes sure that those who are male and those who are female in his hearing have understood that they are included in this equation. He calls for those who are young, who think of themselves as being perhaps too young to make a difference, to be involved in caring for those in need. And he does not let any older person off the hook. He, in fact, says that if you are stumbling your way toward death, Toward those dark mountains, he says. If you are stumbling your way toward those dark mountains, there is still time. And there is still the matter of need. Use every ounce of who you are before that day comes. We turn back to the first of Jesus' words rather than the last of his stories. We look back into the beginning of his preaching and realized that this has been his theme all along. In Matthew chapter 7, the 21st verse, we hear this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And back a step further into the sixth chapter, uh, as we look at the first through the fourth verses, you're well aware of Jesus' preaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them, for then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be praised by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your alms may be done in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you and you see this is what it's all about i think the sheep are not letting their right hand know what their left hand is doing they're just doing because they love jesus and they wish to be the essence of jesus in their lives how many people do good because they think that it's their job to do good or it's their job to impress Jesus. That's not the way it should be. So what do you do? What's the bottom line here? I think you know. 
our calling is to feed the hungry, welcome the stranger, clothe the naked, care for the sick, and visit those in prison. And knew no one knows. Who knows what God might do with that? <laughs>